great to be here, and thank you for inviting me. And it's, it's a great idea to be going through a number of um, famous paintings, uh, because actually sometimes with some of these paintings, um, your average man in the street, woman in the street, person in church would not have a Bible to read and would not actually be able to read. I think the literacy rate round about the time of the artist that painted this uh, um, this was, was something like 5% or something. So these pieces of art that, we, um, that, that you're looking at, certainly today, um, is really, are really important. And I was, I was given the, the story of the Emmaus Road without a painting title. Uh, I think that was just an omission. But I was thinking, well, I'll just draw from various paintings to, to illustrate the story of the Emmaus Road, which is a really powerful post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to his disciples. Uh, but then as I got into Caravaggio, uh, who, who's the, the artist who painted that, reading his life, reading the, you know, understanding the painting, what's going on in the painting, and then thinking about the scripture story, I thought, I don't need to go any further than Caravaggio. So we're going to look at his painting this morning. It would be good for us to just read the story, um, so I will do so. Um, And there it is. Now, that same day, two of the disciples were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So it must have been quite a long journey. Um, As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly. And I love this. I often have posted this on Facebook in the past. Uh, An entreaty to God, stay with us, for it is nearly evening The day is almost over. That works at so many different levels, doesn't it? So he went in to stay with them. 
And when he was at the table with them, and this is what we're particularly going to think about today, not the journey, but the actual meal at Emmaus, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. This wasn't communion that they were, they were having a meal together. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true. Hallelujah. It is true. Let's hear you say that. One, two, three. It is true. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way. Notice he says that the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. Because, of course, Simon was the guy that, you know, made major mistakes around about the time of the crucifixion. He appeared to Simon even. He appears to you despite the mistakes you have made today. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So a wonderful story. And there's the, there's the picture. Any thoughts on it? Any, I hope you don't take away any of my thunder, which I'm going to say. But look, just if anything occurs to you as you see that, what strikes you? The hands? Yeah, yeah. That's right, yeah. He's certainly... Hunched. That's right, hunched. I mean, there's action in it. There's passion. There's, it just grips you, I find. Anything else that strikes you? We'll, we'll go through it anyway. They're all very focused on the figure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Absolutely, yes, that's Jesus. And it's not the way we normally see Jesus in paintings, is it? He's normally... Um, well, he's not always Jewish, but he should, be, he look, he should look Jewish, with a, possibly with a beard. So he's quite different from the way that he's portrayed in other paintings and even by Caravaggio. So um, we'll, we'll think about that, about that this morning. Caravaggio, interesting guy, um, lived from 1571 to 1610. You've got to realize that the context was that the Reformation by now was in full swing. I think uh, um, Martin Luther hammered his... Um, his uh, thesis to the, 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 the church door in 1517. Um, so what was happening was the church had split. You had the Protestant uh, and the Catholic church, and there's a thing called the Counter-Reformation, which was the Catholic church realizing that they needed to do something to change the corruption that was there and also to try and win back uh, some of the Protestants or the people who had left the church. Caravaggio was commissioned by the Catholic Church as part of an attempt to win Protestant Christians back to the Catholic Church. And one commentator about Caravaggio says that with the exception of Michelangelo, no other Italian painter exercised so great an influence. So his style of painting had a major influence on his contemporaries and changed things radically. It was quite different from the whole style of Renaissance painting and so on. 
Caravaggio, the man, fascinating guy, for most of his life, he was a fugitive from the law. He never lived anywhere longer than three months. He had to keep moving. He had to keep changing house because the authorities were after them. The Rosers were after him because he was just such a, um, well, he was a violent, provocative man, they reckon. He murdered someone in a brawl and was forced to flee to Naples. Um, And he himself ultimately was murdered in a back alley, I think, in Naples again, where one of his enemies had caught up with him. So he was a real rough diamond and came from a rough and poor background. Um, And it's a reminder to us, because if we're reflecting on the painting and the man and the story, we're reminded that God uses broken people to reach broken people. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that Caravaggio was a committed Christian. I don't know. But the reality was that he produces some pieces of art that are stunning and that take you into the story that the Scriptures is teaching. So as we look at this this morning, we will be forced to think further about the story because of the the, the painting of beauty that Caravaggio created. So we're reminded that you might be surprised at the way that God uses people around us who are broken. You don't have to look any further than people like Samson and King David in the Bible who made major mistakes and they, David a murderer, Samson, um, you know, just unable to be controlled by God. Uh, but yet God used them. I've mentioned this guy Lonnie Frisbee many times before, but he's a very interesting character. And he was one, one person who was almost single-handedly used by God from a hippie drug-taking background, was converted on an acid trip out in the desert in California, went to this church of about 30 members, started bringing his friends to church. I've told you this story many times before. 20 people came the first week he brought them. They all became Christians. The next week, 20 more. The elders started getting a wee bit worried because these hippies were coming in with studs on their jeans. I mean, they wore Levi's with studs and they were scraping the pews. And they came in with their bare feet and they were putting sand on the nice new church carpets. And they said, it's all very well these young people coming to church, but we've got to get them to smarten up and wear suits for goodness sake. This is church. And we're going to burst at the seams, but they weren't that bothered about having too many people there. They were just worried in case they weren't respectable enough. And the next week, Chuck Smith, who was the pastor of that church, who is uh, well known as a Keswick speaker and so on, he's gone to glory now, but he knelt at the front of the church with a bowl of water and a sponge and washed their feet, um, washed the, the young people's feet as they came in. He lost a number of his elders, but he continued to f- fill that church. And within a matter of months, tens of thousands eventually were attending that church, tens of thousands. But if you remember in the 60s, those beach baptisms that you saw in California, Lonnie Frisbee was a key person in that, but he himself in his life had major moral struggles. He, he struggled in and out of a lifestyle that really wasn't honoring to God, but God continued to use him. 
And he was at the start of the vineyard movement. Uh, He was there at the start of the Holy Spirit moving powerfully within the vineyard and so on. A guy who was greatly used by God and ultimately died of AIDS in the early 90s. A broken man. But he trusted God and dared to believe that God could use him. So Caravaggio was a guy, he likely wasn't even praying and saying, oh God, use me. But God happened to use him. Martin Luther King, uh, you may know of improprieties in his life and his life story and so on and his lifestyle. But God used him powerfully. And there's one more that I want to mention, and that is you. Because Whenever you say, oh, God couldn't use me because I've made too many mistakes and I'm too broken and I've failed too many times, don't you dare believe it. God has still got a story that he wants to write into your life and he wants to use you in powerful ways that you might not ever imagine. So Caravaggio, fascinating guy, a real rum uh, rum character, but his style was original and revolutionary. He rejected the idealism of Renaissance art and used ordinary working people as models for Christ, the Virgin Mary, and the apostles. So when you imagine that the the style of Renaissance art and other styles of art in the day, they would be dressed in their finery as they were becoming part of these biblical stories and biblical pictures, even though it was totally unlike the way that it would have been 2,000 years ago. But they said, well, if it's the church and if it's God and it's the Bible, we've got to dress them up and make them look respectable. And Caravaggio, in, for instance, the calling of St. Matthew, one of his paintings, he shows Christ appearing to Matthew in a tavern, in an inn, in a pub, basically. And actually, that's likely where Jesus did go to call Matthew to follow him. But of course, the way that the church had gone, where it was more important to be rich and respectable and dressed in finery, that's the way that the church was in those days. Caravaggio was effectively calling them back to the street, which is where Jesus operated. In the death of the Virgin Mary, she is modeled on the bloated dead body of a prostitute. He used characters from the street. Um, His street naturalism fitted perfectly with Rome's call for greater realism in Catholic counter-Reformation art. So they realized that this would engage the people of the street. They realized that the church had lost the working man, the people of the street. And Caravaggio, in his art, was bringing people back to that. And conservative figures within the church thought Caravaggio's particular brand of realism went too far because there was one particular painting of of the Apostle Peter, and his feet were pointing out towards the, you as you viewed the painting. They were kind of that way. And you could see that he'd got dirty feet with dirty toenails. I mean, the guy was so authentic. If his model had dirty feet with dirty toenails, he would paint them that way. And so one of the cardinals said, no, 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 we can't have a picture of St. Peter with dirty toenails. We've got to get him to paint the painting again. So he painted it again, and uh, Peter was reverently on his knees praying. And so there's there's this all going on, and he radically changed. There were no drawings that he practiced with. I don't know what uh, Willie would think of this, but but my goodness me, he, he just went straight for it. I think he used the end of his brush to kind of scratch on a rough outline 
on, on the, the canvas, but there was no special drawings. He just went straight for it. So he's got these guys that he's got off the street, maybe just before he started the painting, these rough diamonds. Um, and, and he gets them to, to pose, and then he goes straight into, there's a passion and an immediacy about it. So he's a fascinating character. That's the death of the Virgin Mary that I mentioned. And these are the two characters that we see in the painting that we're looking at, the meal at Emmaus. And you'll notice that he's got a, a tear in his, in, in his uh, sleeve. And the guy on the right, which I think is St. Peter, looks as if he's got a cold. He doesn't attempt to change any of that. He goes for the raw authenticity that he sees in his characters. Now, that's an example of a Renaissance uh, painting of the meal at Emmaus. It is quite different, isn't it? Look at them in their finery. It looks like some strange medieval version of the, of the Bruins or something, doesn't it? You know, they're all around the table in their finery. And Jesus is looking up to heaven. Oh my goodness me, he's not engaged with what's going around him. This ordinary meal where these friends are engaging and meeting together and talking together and, and loving one another. Oh no, he's, he's more interested in heaven. And what Caravaggio is doing is he's bringing us back to earth with real people. And so that's really important. He used, in this particular painting, he used life-size figures. Um, so it's a, it's a, I'm not quite sure where it is. I think it actually is in I'm, London. That's right, I thought. Somewhere in, in London. But notice the wall. Most of the religious art, there would be a distance to it. There would be a, a, a great depth to it. But what he wants to do with us is he wants to make us feel as if we're part of the scene. So you've got this, this wall that's almost able to be touched by the viewer. And you've got uh, the fruit, you'll notice, is, is almost, well, you can see it better. Yeah, I can see it better there. What, what do you reckon to the fruit? What, any, any thoughts? Yeah, it's, it's about to fall off into the space that you're in as the viewer, as the, as the person that's looking at the painting. So you're immediately engaged, drawn into this Bible story through his work of art. Um, so there's, and notice also, it's not in there, but there, you'll notice there's a space at the table. So you are part of the scene, but you're invited to sit down with Jesus and the disciples and talk about resurrection, talk about kingdom, talk about love, talk about the wonder of what it is to follow Jesus. So he's inviting us into the painting to be part of it. There's a, a space there for you. And if you like fruit, you could grab some of that. And there's all symbolism there. There's a rotten apple, I believe, there. Different views on, on what's going on in the, uh, the, in the bowl of fruit. But, of course, the rotten apple might remind us of the temptation and the effects of sin. And Jesus is undoing all of that. Uh, there is the view that this represents the, the light shining through the glass. Uh, um, what do you call it? Uh, it holds water. Jug. That's right. Uh, I knew there was a word. <laughs> the glass jug and shining there. That, that's a symbol of the Virgin Mary being a means of, of God's light shining into, into the world and its purity. 
and so there's the, there's the bread there, there's the, there's the grapes. So you've, you've got the whole picture of redemption in this meal. Because the ordinary things are drawing us into the true spiritual things. Now here's an interesting one. The, the hands, what do you notice about his hands? And those of you who are artists might pick up on this. I didn't pick up on it, but any thoughts on the hands? You'll have to look here. Well, no, you can see it there. The hand, his right hand, and this isn't any great spiritual kind of insight or anything. It's just a a perspective thing. That the right hand is about the same size, if not bigger, than the left hand. And perspective-wise, the left hand should be bigger than the right hand because the right hand is further away. Now, whether that's a mistake he made, I can't imagine it would. So maybe... Maybe he had a particular intention in in doing that. So there's these life-size figures. There's this story that, and and, and we're drawn into it. We're part of it. Now, again, as I say to you, many of the people who saw his paintings would not be able to go away. I think Luther had had printed his, his New Testament by now. People were starting to read, and of course, that's a whole other story, the radical, revolutionary nature of the Bible being made available to people. It wasn't just about reading the Bible, it was about reading. It's about being able to interpret it. It's about not just having the priest tell me how I should live, because he was reading it in Latin, I haven't a clue what he was saying. All of a sudden, you've got it in your own language. This is revolution. And, and, And so it had impact culturally and in so many other ways. But at this time, your average man in the street, to to learn and to read the story, this would likely be his only way of doing it, or the stained glass windows in the church that he went to. So those are the hands that I I mentioned that um, maybe are in the wrong perspective. And just out of interest, he even puts in the details of how the chair is made. You see the joint between the back and the, and the arm of the chair. So he goes into those kinds of details are really interesting. This is what one art critic or writer said, Caravaggio won the acclaim of the mob, the lowlifes who knew nothing about art. And that, of course, is why he was in such demand with the religious orders. And of course, the religious orders and the monks were again seeking to get back to the common people, the poor, the people in the street. The church had become corrupt. The church had become rich. The church had got far too much in terms of riches and so on. But your monks, your, your Franciscans and your Dominicans were going back to the street, and that's why they loved Caravaggio's art and uh, is why it was in such demand with the religious orders who sought to reach the poor. The Counter-Reformation wanted to reach the people. Caravaggio made art that touched the humblest soul. So that's what he and his art tell us. And the whole painting is about the moment of recognition, utter astonishment. And as Willie mentions, uh, Willie's eyes were caught by um, Cleopas. Uh, Is he pulling back because he's scared stiff that there's a miracle? Oh, we're not scared of miracles, are we? Sometimes we don't like miracles because they disturb the natural, predictable order of church life and our lives. You see, a miracle, we've got to do something about it. And my goodness me, sometimes we're pulling our chair away because that's scary. 
Maybe you want to do a miracle in me, God, if I see a miracle in him. And therefore, I, I don't want to change. Oh, I'm happy to go to church and stand up, sit down and sing the hymns and close my eyes at the right time. But you want to do a miracle and change me? I think I'll pull my chair back. Or is he pulling his chair forward? Wow. It's Jesus. He's really raised from the dead. It's worth a second. Hallelujah. 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 Amen. Yes. And, and he's, he's kind of ready to stand up. I can imagine him diving across the table and giving Jesus. I mean, mind you, Jesus would likely disappear at that point because he di- disappeared after they recognized him. But there's utter astonishment. And he has captured that most important part of the story, the point at which he is recognized, Jesus is recognized. So it speaks to us, I think, his painting speaks to us about meeting God in various ways. In one way, it's about meeting God in the stranger. Look at verse 15 and 31. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, whether they were kept from recognizing him just because God closed their eyes and they just didn't see it was Jesus that they knew for three years, or whether there was something about his appearance that they didn't recognize, um, so they were kept from recognizing him. So was it that God stopped them recognizing, or was it that because Jesus appeared slightly different visually, and that's the wonderful and intriguing thing about the resurrection, there's continuity because he's eaten fish with them, he's eating bread with them, he's meeting with them, and he's cooking fish at the, at the shoreline. But then he's disappearing and appearing in different, you know, in rooms. And so there's a discontinuity. And of course, it's the, he's the prototype of our resurrection body. And how that's going to work, I don't know, but it's going to be a blast. Because you can just, you know, I don't know, you, you, there will be a physicality to it. It's not some Greek philosophical floating in the air like, uh, like ghosts or like that Renaissance uh, portrait. It's solid. It's real. And if Jesus ate food with his disciples, then no doubt we'll be eating food together and sitting around tables and, 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 and talking together in, in, in the kingdom of God. So that's going to be exciting. So it, it takes us to that place where what was going on with Jesus? He was Jesus, but he, he looked different. And there was something different about the way that he functioned physically and spiritually. But then verse 31, their eyes were opened as, and they recognized him. And I suppose the challenge for you and me is to see whether we can meet God in the stranger that we see day by day. There may be people that you meet in God. You have an opportunity to love Jesus through that person in their need. Oh, I don't have time. It, you know, it'll draw me into too much and I can't be bothered. And, I, and it may be that Jesus is saying, you know, that's how you, you love me. Because the annoying thing about Jesus is that whenever he says... Uh, when someone said to him, what's the greatest commandment? Remember he said, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, Jesus, that's two commandments. You're cheating. You got one for the price of two, or two for the price of one. But what he's meaning is, if you really want to love God, you can't avoid loving your brother or sister. 
And some of us think we can go away and have nice quiet times and go to church on a Sunday and listen to our CDs, but don't ask me to love my brother or my sister. Don't ask me to love or speak to that person two rows in front of me because they said something to me some time back and, and, and I've never forgiven them. Have you ever heard that kind of thing going on in the Christian church? It's tragic. And Jesus forces us into loving him through our brother or sister. And that's why we can't divide the two. And so when we meet the stranger... It may be that Jesus is saying, love me through that person. Mother Teresa had a very strong view of this. Let me read it to you because you likely can't read the text. But for Mother Teresa, the face of the crucified Jesus could be seen in the poor. There was nothing symbolic or evocative about it. In the poor, she believed we might meet Jesus, not a reminder of Jesus, not a symbol of Jesus, but Jesus himself face to face, hungering for our love, thirsting for our kindness, waiting to be clothed by our compassion. You might think that Mother Teresa is taking it too far, but she's not taking it any further than the way Jesus took it. When he said, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of these, least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So the challenge for you and for me as a result of this painting is to to look for that surprising occasion when you see the opportunity to love God in that stranger. And I want to ask you, I suppose, this morning is who is the stranger to you? Because you've maybe been immediately thinking about the barista at Starbucks that you kind of ignore. You're going to, you know, love Jesus in him when you get your coffee, your triple shot tall Americano or what it is you get. Or maybe it's, it's the person that lives next to your neighbor. I want to ask you if there's a, a stranger in the church that you've never spoken to. And there's an element in which all of us are strangers to one another because there's a mystery to us that we can never delve to the depths of. So there'll be stranger bits to everyone. And therefore, we need to have an interest and time for and compassion for and understanding for because everyone has got a story. So if you give your time to Jesus in that brother, sister, over coffee or over lunch or whatever, maybe that's the stranger that Jesus is calling you to reach out to. Not just your mates that you get on really well with and you see things exactly the same way as you. Not merely the people at the same age, but actually anyone that we might engage with. So meeting God in the stranger. Meeting God in ordinary life, not the sermon. I'm not saying you shouldn't listen to a sermon or meet God in a sermon, because that's why I'm preaching just now. Goodness me, it's seven minutes past 12. When did I start? Okay, right, keep going. So ordinary life, not the Notice in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The greatest expository preacher in the world was preaching to them along the road, and they didn't get it. But, verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened. It was the experience of the ordinary process of life that suddenly they saw God. And so, therefore, we need to be ready to meet God in the ordinary bits of life. Why have I put a drum kit over there? One of the churches I was in, uh, when we started having more musicians than just an organist, and we eventually had a wee band, and then we had a, someone who had learnt the drums, so we wanted to incorporate them in the worship band. And, but the stage 
part was quite limited in space, and there was a baptistry with a, with a, uh, a lid on the top of it, and eventually I said, well, it's, just, it's dead. It's no, a no-brainer. We put the drums on top of the baptistry. And this was a Baptist church. We, we're not cared, we don't care about religious furniture and uh, you know, uh, stuff like that. God doesn't dwell in buildings shaped with hands and so on. Uh, you know, we, we take our pride in that kind of theological perspective. But the minute I suggested we put the drum kit on top of the baptistry, nearly World War III... Now, actually, eventually, we agreed that that was the best thing to do. But suddenly, I realized that in people's thinking, there was a split between sacred and secular. Drums are about rock and roll and about music and about the rest of life. But baptistry, that's a sacred thing. And what we tend to do quite often is we, we split our spiritual life, and the rest of life. And what this is telling us is that you might meet God in the ordinariness of a meal with a brother or sister or with your family or wherever. And so therefore, there are no splits between sacred and secular. All of life is the habitation of God. And I want another amen to that as well. Because the minute I discovered that as a young Christian, it was almost as important as my conversion. Because I'd been living with this split life. This is my secular life. And remember one person said that about, you know, the music. I like, oh, you shouldn't listen to that. That's secular. Um, but this is what you should be listening to. And this is where you... And it was as if God was only interested in an hour and a half on a Sunday morning and a prayer meeting halfway through the week. And all of a sudden, I discovered he was interested in politics. He was interested in social action. He was interested in art and music. Because surprise, surprise, he'd, he'd, he'd created the whole thing in the first place. And so therefore, there is nothing that is a no-go area to God. Meeting God in ordinary life. And so therefore, those meals with friends or a film or the, the trust of a child becomes a kind of sacrament whereby you engage with God at that point. I was watching a film with Jude Law during the week. It was a submarine film, and uh, all of a sudden at the end of it, and I hope I'm not spoiling the storyline for you if you're about to watch it, can't even remember what the name was. All of a sudden, Jude Law, as the main character in the film, totally out of the blue, lays down his life for the other guys. In the, and immediately... I was back at the cross. I, I, I was taken by surprise by something in ordinary life that reminded me of God. Everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So what's going on here is in an ordinary setting, just having a meal together, God shows up, Jesus shows up, and they are shocked. I was watching a, an interview with Johnny Ive, who was, is, well, no, was the, the main designer for Apple, iPhones, iPads, iMacs, all of the i stuff, an incredibly gifted guy. And, and Steve Jobs, one of Steve Jobs' best friends, and he says Steve Jobs used to come into his room, into his office every so often and say, Johnny, how many things have you said no to today? And, and Johnny, I knew exactly what he was meaning because he was saying, you've got to be focused on the design of that latest iPhone or that iPad or whatever it was. 
And he tried to fob Steve Jobs off in some way. He said, well, I, I said no to that, and I said no to that. And Steve Jobs looked at him and says, I know perfectly well you weren't really interested in any of that, but you've got to get focused. And the minute I heard that, I was back there on the shore of Galilee where Jesus was saying, am I more important than those fishing nets and that boat? Come and follow me. Be focused. Focus on the kingdom. And so that was something that was totally unexpected to me as I was watching something that wasn't religious. It was profoundly religious, profoundly spiritual. And it struck me in my heart and challenged me. And I'll leave Graham Crayer to it because that's uh, something else. Meeting God in hopelessness. I wonder if any of you are hopeless today. Something's happened in your life. Something's happened in your family. And something's happened that you think is irreversible and it, you, it, your life has crashed around you. That's where, the way these disciples were. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So this is about meeting God in your hopelessness and daring to believe that at the least expected moment, a miracle will take place. And it happened for so many of the characters in the Bible. The moment of miracle destroys hopelessness. You've got Zechariah and Elizabeth giving up and expecting a child. And lo and behold, an angel appears when they least expected it. Moses at the burning bush, a murderer who is an utter failure. And then God speaks from this bush and sends him to free his people from, Israel, uh, from Egypt. Abram and Isaac. Uh, Abram about to sacrifice his son, the means of blessing to the whole world. And God shows up at the least expected one and says, no, don't touch him but I can see now that you want to obey me. So in your hopelessness, do you dare believe you can meet, uh, meet God? And this is the last one. Because I find this, this fascinating. Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem, verse 18, who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And the, iron, the ironic thing is he actually was the only one who did know what was going on. Are you the only one that doesn't know? I mean, come on, where have you been, man? And Jesus actually was the only one who did know because the kingdom was starting to take. There was an eruption going on. There was an explosion going on. There was a kingdom coming as a result of his resurrection. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road? And notice that it's not until they are there that they can look back and see that God was in their past. Don't you? Do you not remember how when he spoke to us, our hearts were burning? And sometimes it's not until we look back that we see how our life fits in with God's purpose. Your life fits in with God's purpose. In the middle of it, it seems utterly untidy, dark, devastating. How am I ever going to get through this? But I want to say to you this morning, you will get through it. It came to pass. I love that. It came to pass. It came and it will pass. And you will look back and say, hey, that's what that was about. That's why I had to go through that. And it's as they look back, even though Jesus has gone to where he's going next, they're looking back and then, why didn't we see it? And it may be that even in glory, it may take till you get to glory that you look back and say, hey, I see why. I wish I'd learned from that at the time. 
And so our past we can meet God in. So what do we do? Well, we've got to try and find God everywhere. Whoop. That's it. No, that's the last song. There should be a last slide. Doesn't always work though, does it? You sometimes get the first. The, oh, that's it. Just a glimpse. Find God everywhere. Maybe if you do it, it would work better than this. No, go on. Sometimes the transitions don't work on the final slide. I remember that now. I should have put a further slide at the end that said the end. And then I would have got the second last slide. But what I'm saying to you is find God everywhere. Don't be surprised when you meet him in the place of the straight in the face of the stranger. Trust him in your hopelessness and dare to believe that as you goodness me, it's 70 minutes, but I've gone on far too long. As you look back, you will see him in your past. Father, help us to do that. We sometimes are blind and deaf, and we don't see what you're doing in our lives. But we thank you for this strange man, Caravaggio. We thank you for the gifts that you gave him. And we thank you that he's called us to engage with the risen Christ again today. He shocked us into realizing that we are invited to be part of this meal, and there's a space at the table for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.